Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target, are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. The Super Nintendo. Home of some of the best, or rather most super, RPGs, platformers, and adventure games ever made. It took us from 8 bits to 16, and it axed bleeps and bloops so that we could hear sweet, bit-crushed samples of actual instruments. Titles such as Earthbound, Super Mario All-Stars, and even games like The Lion King all gave us something memorable to see, hear, and play. And we'll be covering all these games and more in this video. But what truly made the SNES stand out against the competition back in the day was highly polished and super fun titles, like, I don't know, Kirby Superstar, for example. Kirby Superstar, despite being intended for an SNES release from the get-go, actually began development on the original NES. This unreleased NES prototype was used for internal purposes only, as a way of finalizing all of the ideas that would go into the end product before the team had an actual SNES development kit. This process can be seen with the NES sprites for the yo-yo and cutter abilities, which were released to the public over 20 years later in an issue of Famitsu. The sprites shown look nearly identical to their counterparts in the finished product, with the main exception being the lack of Superstar's signature ability hats. Director Masahiro Sakurai stated that this type of development style is beneficial to him, as the starting step of finalizing all of a game's ideas via an internal prototype makes the rest of development significantly easier, with many of the original ideas having already been partially fleshed out before development of the final product begins to take shape. Speaking of early design stages of a game, The Lion King actually includes a number of levels and characters that don't have any obvious connection to its source material, The Lion King Movie. This is because several levels and characters that appear throughout the game come from deleted scenes of The Lion King. During the film's production, the original intention for the transition from young Simba to adult Simba was considerably longer and featured a number of the events that occur within the game. Because the game was being produced alongside the film, these levels were being created during the point when it was decided to have these scenes removed from the film. It was decided to keep these levels and characters in the game, even though they never appear in the film's theatrical release. This means that the game actually includes a more complete series of events than the film, arguably making it a more comprehensive look at the film's planned story. While the SNES had many great platformers, we shouldn't forget its more experimental titles, such as the much-beloved Mario Paint. 
The game was more of an art tool than a game, but even the game's original release wasn't the most experimental version. The title actually had an updated release distributed exclusively through the Japan-exclusive Satellaview service. This new release introduces support for standard controllers alongside the original's usage of the Super NES mouse, something that, as a kid, would have been a huge benefit considering many people bought the game second-hand without a mouse, myself included, rendering it impossible to play. But this Yushao Naizoban version of the game introduces an additional picture for the player to color in, titled Dreaming of the Moon, created by Mizota Hiroko of Tokyo, the winner of a contest associated with Mario Paint BS Ban. But the game had some secrets that everyone could enjoy. The original release of Mario Paint held a secret message that was rarely seen by painters. When creating any image or animation, if the images are sufficiently large enough and highly detailed, it's possible that the game will be unable to implement compression on them, pushing them beyond the cartridge's 32 kilobytes of SRAM. If this happens, when the player attempts to save their creation, the save robot will display the rare error message of data overflow, including a unique animation that cannot be seen otherwise, which has the robot puff out smoke from its quote-unquote ears with a looping explosion sound effect. Speaking of alterations made for specific markets, the classic RPG Breath of Fire was actually changed for its localization in the West. The most notable change is that the original Japanese release of the game included a stereotypical and racist depiction of a black person. Khan, known as Dank in the Japanese version, had his race altered for overseas markets. Originally, Khan had a tan but desaturated ashy complexion, with a set of full lips and curly hair. This was changed in the West to make him Arabian-esque, with smaller lips and straight hair instead. Why this was changed was pretty much a no-brainer, but this isn't the only 16-bit Breath of Fire title to be censored. Breath of Fire 2 was also censored, though this was done long after the game's first release on the SNES. For the game's digital release on the Wii U Virtual Console, two instances of text changes were made, the first being a very simple change of the word damn being changed into darn while the second change is a bit more involved. One of the game's mini-games was changed specifically in how it is described. Originally, the translation described the game as being kind of like Othello, with the issue being that Othello is actually a registered trademark and one which had encountered some legal disputes in the years running up to Breath of Fire 2's Virtual Console release. It was likely the easiest option to simply remove this text entirely, which is exactly what happens. The line, it's kind of like Othello, was simply removed entirely. Another popular JRPG for the Super Nintendo was the last 16-bit Final Fantasy, Final Fantasy VI. In the game, when the party encounters Cyan, it's possible to find the Book of Secrets, an item located at Mount Zozo in the World of Ruin. Along with guides for understanding and operating machinery, the player finds the book in Cyan's trunk. The English release of the game sheds no light on the nature of its contents, but the original Japanese version gives a small clue as to what's inside the pages. Here, it's referred to as Choto Echi no Hon, which means a little naughty book. 
In the later Game Boy Advance release of the game, the book was called Bushido in the Bedroom, with the more obvious implication that the book was of a sexual nature. Okay, so look, we know it's a bit of a meme at this point that the original version of Super Mario Bros. 2, which we in the West saw on the NES, was actually a reskin of a Japanese game called Doki Doki Panic. We know it's a meme, but we've got to explain it every time because it's a very basic piece of information that needs to have context as to what we're talking about, so I'm sorry. What isn't as well known is that the original Super Mario 2 from Japan, which plays more like the original Super Mario Bros. and went on to be known as as The Lost Levels in America and Europe, almost saw a standalone release in the West via Nintendo Power magazine. In an interview with writer John Irwin for his 2014 book on the game, former marketing manager at Nintendo of America and founding editor of Nintendo Power, Gail Tilden, stated, we weren't doing anything with it, so I worked up with my Nintendo Power agency a campaign called The Lost Levels. According to Tilden, a single NES cartridge containing the original Super Mario Bros. 2 was made, but Nintendo worried the title would confuse the market, and thus they scrapped the idea. The Lost Levels rebranding would eventually make its way to the SNES title Super Mario All-Stars, alongside Super Mario Bros. 1, 3, and the Western reskinned version of 2. As of this video, the current whereabouts of the NES prototype are not known, but it could be a great find someday. Keep your eyes out, perhaps. Earthbound may also have been a sequel to a Japanese-exclusive NES title, Mother, but instead of playing it safe, this sequel went far more in-depth. During the game's opening, the player must investigate a meteorite that has struck the Earth just a short walk from their house. Along with their friend Porky, the player comes face to face with the falling star, but this scene actually has a unique aspect to it unlike any other in the game, at least as far as we know. Despite Earthbound being a single-player adventure, by plugging in a second controller during this scene, it's possible to control the light that shines from the meteorite. This wasn't discovered for at least a good 20 years after the game's release. But there is actually more interesting information that comes from the first hour of the game. After encountering the Celestial Rock, the player is joined by the stout Buzz Buzz, though his time in the player's journey doesn't last long, as when returning Porky home to his mum, he is immediately dispatched and taken out. Usually, this scene will have Ness take the soundstone from Buzz Buzz, but there is an opportunity to change this by having a full inventory. If the player has no space on their person to take the soundstone from Buzz Buzz, he will notice this and not give it to you. Instead, he will transport it to Tracy, meaning that you don't have to hold the soundstone in your inventory for the entire game, and it will still record the melodies of the Your Sanctuary locations even in Tracy's possession. Normally, the soundstone remains in your inventory for the whole game and cannot be sent to Escargo Express. If you do wish to have the soundstone back from Tracy, you must talk to her in person, though there's of course a benefit in leaving it in storage, as it opens an additional inventory slot that would otherwise be occupied permanently. Today's episode is going to be all about games that were released for Nintendo's 16-bit machine of dreams, the Super Nintendo Entertainment System. The SNES was the birthplace of many development companies and franchises that continue to thrive in the gaming market to this day. 
Without the opportunities development teams had with the SNES at the time of its release, it's likely that many of the series that gamers still know and love would have never existed, or at the very least, would have not been developed into what they are today. One hot title for the SNES that pushed one of Nintendo's franchises further than it had ever reached before was The Legend of Zelda A Link to the Past. The game's subtitle, A Link to the Past, is of course an incredibly clever nod to the game's plot and hero, Link, but this wasn't always going to be the final name for the game. During an interview with Electric Brain magazine back in 1992, Miyamoto provided insights into the game's development, sharing a few names that were juggled around the staff. Some of the titles even sounded like modern takes on Nintendo titles. To avoid the game sharing its name with the original NES Legend of Zelda, one idea was to call the game The New Legend of Zelda, a trend in naming habits that we wouldn't actually see until New Super Mario Bros. on the DS. Another title that was considered was Ganon Strikes Back, which was almost certainly a sly reference to Star Wars The Empire Strikes Back. In this same interview, Miyamoto mentioned that the increased power offered by the Super Nintendo allowed their developers to increase the size of Link's adventure, and as a result, it was possible for them to include any leftover ideas they had from the original Legend of Zelda into the new title that the original NES simply couldn't handle. New concepts were considered, but dropped, as despite the Super Nintendo offering more memory, it still wouldn't be enough to fulfill every idea the team created. One such idea was to have fire spread on its own throughout the fields of grass found across Hyrule, a concept that wouldn't truly be implemented until Breath of the Wild, but which has also appeared in a limited fashion in what many consider to be a spiritual successor to A Link to the Past, Four Swords Adventures. Another idea was to be able to use the shovel to dig into the ground, but rather than just uncover items, Link would have been able to dig out a canal and introduce it to a body of water to seep water into the man-made canal. Miyamoto also makes a brief mention when asked of any game similar to Zelda that they plan to release. He says, How about Link's Adventure on the Super Famicom? This was likely in reference to Zelda 2 The Adventure of Link, a remake Nintendo was said to have been experimenting with using the Super FX chip. Another franchise that came into its own during the era of the Super Nintendo was Shin Megami Tensei, the original series that would go on to spawn Persona. The third entry in the Megami Tensei series saw players finding themselves in Tokyo Destiny Land, a pretty clear parody of Tokyo Disneyland. What the player didn't find, however, was two NPCs which wound up being cut from the game, though they can still be found within its data. These demons depict a mouse and duck wielding swords and a chainsaw, respectively. These monsters were likely cut for looking almost exactly like Disney's Mickey Mouse and Donald Duck. Even though the intent was to parody the characters, which could be argued as fair use in a court of law, they may not have wanted to risk any legal action from Disney. That said, the two demonic parodies do appear in the PC Engine release of the game, though they've been reworked to distance themselves in appearance from their Super Famicom counterparts. Their names in the game are still a bit on the nose, being referred to as Zombie Mouse and Demon Duck. Speaking of game series with strong cult followings, Star Fox 2 is a pretty fascinating example of a cancelled game that had a continued presence throughout the years, with a post-console digital exclusive release from Nintendo. But some of the game's most interesting elements can't be seen without ripping off the hood and taking a peek at the innards. Argonaut Software did the bulk of the work on Star Fox 2, and were led at the time by Dylan Cuthbert. Cuthbert created many of the tools which were used to make the game, and he also took on the role of lead programmer. 
This would be pretty evident in the game's data, as it's possible to find a hidden credit within the game's files in the form of a 64-character-wide ASCII art that spells out Cuthbert's full name. Another point of interest is a different line of unused text which reads Starglider 01 November 1991. This text is most likely a leftover from the prototype build of the original Star Fox. The early development version of Star Fox, which went under the name Starglider, leaked online in 2020, revealing an interesting stage of the game's creation. The prototype had no title screen or menus. In fact, it doesn't even feature any of the regular Star Fox crew in any form. All that is really available is a version of the game's map, which is pretty different from what would be featured in the final build, and an almost completely different version of the game's soundtrack, with more of an emphasis on a rock style of music. Of course, stages were also very dissimilar from what would be seen in the final game, and several smaller elements would be changed, like the player's R-Wing, which originally had extremely thin wings and a rear composed of just three polygons. But Star Fox wasn't the only Nintendo franchise that would experiment with 3D visuals. Super Mario RPG Legend of the Seven Stars is another top-tier game for the SNES, which was noteworthy for its graphics back in the day. The game has many secrets, and we've covered a few of them before, such as the title's regional differences. But since our video on the game a few years ago, many more Japan-only easter eggs have come to light thanks to Clyde Mandolin's work over at Legends of Localization. The original Super Famicom release has quite a few sly nods to anime hidden within the thoughts of Mario's foe. Mallow, one of the characters that joins the player's party, has the ability to read the minds of enemies in battle, but their thoughts are different between regions. In the English game, the Terrapin enemy is pondering, yo, what's going on? A basic translation that actually removes a reference to Dragon Ball. In the Japanese game, the enemy thinks, yo, I'm Nokohei, are you watching, Grandpa? With Nokohei being its Japanese name. This not only references the line, Yo, I'm Goku, which plays at the end of every Dragon Ball episode in the Japanese dub, but the second half of the line alludes to Goku's grandpa, Gohan. The crook enemy also references a very popular anime, but not in the English game. If the player scans their mind in the Western release, it'll say, You can't run away, ha! But the Japanese version says, Mustn't run away, mustn't run away. This is a reference to Neon Genesis Evangelion's very first episode, where Shinji mutters to himself, I mustn't run away, over and over again. Even Mario RPG's Hammer Brothers reference anime in their noggins. In the English game, they simply think, I love my hammer. But in the Japanese game, their minds read, My Hammer Tonight is a little bit different, Turtle Turtle. This is a nod to Lapan Third's Goemon, who will say, My Zantetsuken Tonight is a little bit different. Zantetsuken, by the way, is a kind of sword that's either rumored or believed to be able to cut through steel or iron. Ah, the Super Nintendo. An amazing step forward for the world of gaming. Coming after Nintendo's first home console, many of the core fundamentals of what a home console was had already been established, but the SNES was able to offer more power and more opportunities to progress those fundamentals even further. Everything about the console saw improvements over the NES, with more buttons, more graphical variety, better music, and with that, arguably, better games. Platformers like Super Mario World 2 Yoshi's Island and Donkey Kong Country 2 
fighting games like Primal Rage and awesome RPGs like Final Fantasy VI, Chrono Trigger, and Super Mario RPG. But first, we're going to take a look at one of our favourite titles on the system, Mega Man X. Many new designs and characters were introduced to the Mega Man franchise with this next generation of games. Mega Man X took the original formula and gave it just a little bit of modern spice. Some of that spice included new characters like Vile, a Reploid war machine, who many have compared to other pop culture icons such as Star Wars bounty hunter Boba Fett. Vile's original Japanese name was Vava, which some argued was changed to Vile in international releases out of the fear that Lucasfilm would sue Capcom as a result of Vava being just a touch too close to Boba, with V's and B's sometimes being used interchangeably in Japanese. However, in an interview conducted in 2012, Capcom character designer Tom Pon stated that Vile's design was inspired by another character in pop culture, but not Boba Fett. The true inspiration was Bubba Zanetti from the 1979 George Miller film Mad Max, with Vava being similar to the transliterated name of the character Baba Zanetti. It would only be later in the Mega Man X series, with the release of Mega Man X8, that Vile's colours were changed from purple to green as a sort of nod to the similarities the character had with Boba Fett. Next up, we're talking about another favourite of ours. Yoshi's Island was a sequel to Super Mario World, with Mario taking on a younger appearance as a baby. But it doesn't seem as though the game was always intended to be a Mario title. With the infamous Giga Leak event, in which many of Nintendo's early assets were leaked online for all to dissect, assets pertaining to Yoshi's Island stood out to many, particularly when it came to its graphics. This includes an early sprite sheet for Yoshi, which didn't even have Mario present. Instead, Mario's role is taken by what appears to be a young wizard. This could lead you to believe that the original plot of the game wouldn't have involved Yoshi saving Mario, but rather Yoshi saving a wizard. Not only does this character have graphics for the main gameplay sections of the game, but even the game's opening, suggesting that this may not have been just a simple generic placeholder character, but rather one that would have had some considerations made. Other unused concepts can be found deep into these archives too, which back up claims made by Miyamoto in a 1995 interview. A sprite sheet for Mario can be found which shows him in his adult state, which, according to Miyamoto, was the original plan for when Yoshi obtained an invincibility star. Instead of baby Mario being given extra power, Mario would have quickly aged to his adult state. The concept was dropped because it doesn't really make a whole lot of sense. The interviewer mentioned that from a sales point of view, a game where you control Mario rather than Yoshi would probably sell more, to which Miyamoto responded with, Yes, and that's why we added the ability to transform into Super Baby Mario when you pick up a star. In fact, our first idea was that the baby would transform into fully grown, mustachioed Mario when you got the star. But another staff member pointed out how that would be weird with the story, so we kept him as Super Baby Mario. Personally, I still think the idea of adult Mario running around is better. Speaking of mustachioed Mario, Baby Mario's appearance was also altered during development, with graphics existing for the character in a bonnet as a baby still donning his iconic facial hair. Frankly, it's, uh, it's just a bit unsettling. 
this next game wouldn't be seen in stores two years after it released, all thanks to complaints in the United States. In 1996, a mother from Gilbert, Arizona, started a grassroots campaign to have the SNES port of Primal Rage pulled from store shelves, despite the game having been on the market for two years at that point. The campaign had a limited amount of success, with the initial controversy coming about as a result of her 11-year-old son executing Chaos's fatality, the Golden Shower, a move in which the beast finishes off his opponent by urinating on them a shocking and grotesque finisher for those without a sense of humor. Time Warner Interactive, who published the title, dismissed the claim because the mother decided to go straight to the media as a first port of call, rather than approaching either themselves or the game's developer, Atari. The company managed to prove their point when they decided to resubmit the game for a rating from the ESRB to get a second opinion, where the board decided to give the game a T14 rating the same rating that the board had concluded the game should be released with already. Having not changed the rating of their game, Time Warner made a point of chastising the mother for criticizing the game for its content when she willfully ignored the age rating given for the game and let her 11-year-old play a game that was given a rating above his age. Next up, we're talking about the SNES exclusive Uni Races, or Uni Rally, in PAL regions. The game's developers, DMA Design, once had a strong relationship with Nintendo and planned to reference this connection in an earlier version of the game. As seen in pre-release footage from a Nintendo Power Previews commercial, the game's tours were once planned to be named after Nintendo franchises, including The Legend of Zelda, Super Mario, Kirby, Metroid, Donkey Kong, Yoshi, Wario, Star Fox, and one tour was named after the Ultra 64, which was the original name for the Nintendo 64. But this is far from the game's only interesting tidbit. There are 16 different races in the game, each functioning as a save file that you can name. However, some names just won't work. If the player enters a common swear word or a word that's generally taboo, the game will say, not cool enough, and you'll have to enter a different name. But the devs at DMA went one step further, having a dig at Nintendo's rivals. If the words Sonic or Sega are entered as names, the not cool enough prompt will also be triggered. Cheeky boys. This next piece of trivia reveals that Donkey Kong Country and Phil Collins actually had more in common than just gorillas. According to the game's composer, David Wise, he had actually been attempting to make the SNES emulate the sound of a Roland CR-78 drum machine, the same machine utilized by Phil Collins for the song In the Air Tonight. The similarities between Donkey Kong Country soundtrack and Collins' song can be heard quite strikingly at the beginning of the game's track, Bayou Boogie. At Parker, our purpose is simple. We want to make the world a better place. By working more efficiently. By using more sustainable practices. By developing better technologies. We keep moving forward. With each new idea, innovation, and partnership, we're one step closer to fulfilling our purpose every single day. To find out more, visit parker.com slash purpose. Parker, engineering your success.
Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target, are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill. Interestingly, one fan of the game, who was musically inclined, had actually noticed this connection before David Wise even made this statement, a whole five years prior when he made a mashup of the two songs to demonstrate their similarities. Next up we're talking about Chrono Trigger, Final Fantasy VI, and Super Mario RPG. But we'd like to quickly mention that we're giving away an OLED Nintendo Switch plus one game on our second channel. All you need to do to be eligible to win is be subscribed and leave a genuine, non-spam comment anywhere on the channel. There's more details on that in the video in the corner and in the description. Now back to the trivia. One small change had to be made to Chrono Trigger when the game was localized for English speakers. The change in question can be found during a side quest in the game where the player must travel back in time to try and save Luca's mother from an accident in waiting, which left her debilitated for life. In order to save her, the player must work out a password to the machine which is set to harm her, a password which winds up actually being her name. The player must input this password without the use of a password entry screen. So of course, using quick thinking, the player must come to realize that they need to type out the name by using the buttons on their controller. The left shoulder button for an L, the A button for an A, etc. Now, in the Japanese release of the game, Luca's mother is written in kanji, with no distinct way to spell this name using the Latin alphabet. Because of the similarities of L and R in Japanese, Luca's mother could actually have one of four different names. Lara, Lala, Rala, or Rara. The correct answer is Lala in the Japanese game, though knowing this answer would have been tough. It's a lot more straightforward in English because L and R are phonetically distinct, but the English localization team also changed the character's name to Lara, probably because it was the closest option that actually resembled a Western name. This also meant that the game had to be partially reprogrammed to accommodate this, as it meant the password required a different combination of button inputs. The localization team of Final Fantasy VI also had their hands full with the game's translation, particularly, it seems, with their desire to incorporate pop culture or real-world references into the game that audiences may recognize. Well, would have recognized back in the 90s, perhaps. Legends of Localization has compiled some of these references together, including a line which was likely referencing Beavis and Butthead, with a corporal saying, Fire, fire, heh heh heh. Fire, 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 fire! <laughs> Another reference comes with the Three Dream Stooges, which, unsurprisingly, includes a reference to the Three Stooges, sharing the names of Moe, Larry, and Curly. Another reference to popular TV viewing occurs in the last battle with Ultros, in which he calls in Typhon with the line, Come on down, the famous catchphrase from hit game show The Price is Right. As perhaps a reference to something slightly older, however, one of the passwords for a boy in South Figaro during the Empire's occupation is Rosebud, a reference to the most prized possession of the protagonist from Citizen Kane. Rosebud. 
The next RPG we're talking about is Super Mario RPG, which also happens to have a ton of references within it, though notably far more in the Japanese version of the game. There was some excellent research done a few years ago by video game translator Clyde Mandolin, where he compared the English dialogue of many enemies to their Japanese counterparts, revealing that the English localization cut out many references to media. But there were a few other things lost in translations as well, direct references to Nintendo games and characters. In the English versions of Mario RPG, the Magikoopa enemies will say, that's my child, when a battle starts. This is a bit odd, and seems to be a bare-bones translation of the text that pops up in the Japanese game. Here, the Magikoopa says, Kiuki, you're that baby from that one time. This is clearly a reference to Super Mario World 2 Yoshi's Island, where a Magikoopa kidnaps baby Mario and Luigi, but drops Mario and tries to recapture him. It seems that the localization staff on Mario RPG didn't get the reference at all, and changed it to something similar, but generic without the original meaning. Another enemy in the game is Gorilla, not to be confused with Donkey Kong, of course. In the English version, this foe's opening text says, Don't confuse me with someone else, a nod to the fact that this ape has a striking resemblance to DK. However, this is a toned-down version of the original Japanese text, which opens with, This character has no relation to any persons living or dead. Any resemblance is purely coincidental. The intro text is worded as a legal disclaimer from the developers, rather than a statement from the character, which frankly is far funnier. Though to be fair, the legal disclaimer joke was probably dropped due to text character limitations. The enemy's name was also changed, with the Japanese name being Dosuki Yongu, which sounds like a bootleg version of how Donkey Kong is pronounced in Japanese. Donkey Kongu. DC Comics superheroes have a long lineage in the medium of video games, with some adaptations like the Batman Arkham series proving hugely popular. For some members of the DC library on the other hand, success has eluded them. In the case of Green Lantern, it wasn't until 2011 that the character finally received their own video game. This came in the form of Green Lantern Rise of the Manhunters, a tie-in to the Green Lantern movie starring Ryan Reynolds. This beat-em-up by Double Helix Entertainment, which was built from the remnants of a cancelled Justice League fighting game, underperformed much like the movie that inspired it. That was by no means the first attempt to translate the character into video game form, however. That honour belonged to the once prominent UK developer Ocean Software, who was producing a Green Lantern game for the SNES in the early 1990s. For decades, the unreleased project has remained largely shrouded in mystery, with memories of it being kept alive by archived magazine scans and enthusiast websites picking up the pieces. Thanks to the tireless efforts of game historians, namely Frank Gasking, the creator of Games That Weren't, much of the game's history has at last been demystified. In 2019, Frank's search to preserve Ocean's Lost Project bore fruit as he recovered a prototype cartridge from the project. As a result of this discovery, in partnership with Games That Weren't, we can now exclusively bring you the world's first glimpse of the game in motion. In this instalment of Game History Secrets, I'll be exploring the history of Ocean Software's Green Lantern and why the game never came to be. 
Ocean Software was a studio based in Manchester, England, founded in 1983. The company initially made its name developing clones and conversions of popular arcade games for home computers, such as Donkey Kong. It was a bit later into the decade that Ocean Star would truly rise, however, as they entered the business of license games. One of their breakout hits using this approach arrived in 1987. They took a chance on a little-known Hollywood script about a cybernetically altered police officer purchasing the rights to adapt it into a video game prior to its release. Robocop would go on to become one of the biggest movies of the year, and Ocean's Gamble paid off for them hugely. They were able to get their adaptation of the movie out within the same year, allowing them to quickly recoup the relatively small amount paid for the license. The game was very well received and the studio had a monster hit on its hands, as it dominated UK sales charts for over a year. Ocean's success opened the door to bigger, more established names. The studio partnered with Warner Brothers to produce a tie-in game to the 1989 Batman movie for home computers. Capitalising upon hype around the film once again, the game sold well, further solidifying their strong working relationship with WB. Ocean's numerous Batman games paved the way to them gaining greater access to DC's back catalogue in the early 1990s. The company took an interest in a number of properties around this time, first Watchmen, followed by Lobo, and Green Lantern. The latter would end up becoming their focus, and by 1991, a Green Lantern game entered the preliminary stages of development at Ocean Software. At this point, it was being planned for the Commodore Amiga and Atari ST. Ideas were fluid, but cast Hal Jordan as the playable Green Lantern of choice. This sketch of the character, drawn by artist Mike Marshall, was one of the earliest examples of pen being put to paper on the project. It was created as part of an internship that Marshall had arranged at Ocean's Manchester offices. The project was worked on for no more than a few months before being put on ice. By all indications, the developers were struggling to come up with a solid design plan for the Amiga and ST platforms. It was shelved accordingly with the intention of one day revisiting it. That day eventually arrived a couple of years later. By 1993, Ocean had pivoted to home console development and had a number of titles in the works for the SNES. Among them was a tie-in game inspired by the live-action Dennis the Menace movie which launched just in time for the holiday season. Programmer Andrew Deakin and artist Ivan Horn were frequent collaborators at Ocean who had worked together on the game and now found themselves in search of their next project. They would soon be paired up again, this time for a revived Green Lantern project being overseen by Gary Bracey, Ocean's VP of Development and resident comic book enthusiast. The company's management had made the decision to bring it back on the Super Nintendo. Its improved graphical capabilities over older hardware allowed for more creative freedom and they had already developed technology that could be used for Green Lantern. Recycling platforming code from Dennis the Menace, Green Lantern was predominantly a side-scrolling platformer with puzzle elements. Pulling right from the comics, Green Lantern's ring could project all manner of different shapes and objects to battle enemies and aid in progression, such as a giant green anvil. Their Green Lantern of choice was, again, Hal Jordan, the main Green Lantern in the comics at this time. 
The game's plot pulled from an obscure area of the source material that had only been briefly touched upon in a 1963 story called The Green Lantern Disasters. In it, Hal Jordan travels to the distant world of Zeos, a planet of intelligent insects which is home to a grasshopper-like Green Lantern named Zax. Hal finds Zeos under the thumb of a gang of bugs which has seized the planet's food supply of sugar and helps Zax defeat them. While Zax would go on to very occasionally appear in other Green Lantern media, this was, prior to 1993, the only instance in which his homeworld Zeos was shown. Regardless, it was this little-known corner of the DC Universe around which Ocean decided to base their game's story. In the Green Lantern game, the Queen of Zeos threatens the fate of the universe when she sends her army of insectoid creatures to obtain a series of mythical crystals. If she is successful, the artifacts will grant them invincibility, allowing them to rule over existence unchallenged. The Green Lantern sets out to stop her, traversing various alien worlds on his way to Zeos itself to defeat her. The Zeos Queen is said to have been a fully original character that was inspired by the Queen from the 1986 sci-fi movie Aliens. The game was planned to transition between different genres of gameplay, mixing platforming levels with vertical and horizontal shoot-em-up stages, in addition to sections which leveraged the system's Mode 7 capabilities. In these parts, players would maneuver the hero as he flies over a moonscape environment, evading and returning fire in forward-facing aerial combat. Its variety was a result of the disjointed manner in which the game was built. Separate small groups of people throughout Ocean's offices made each section individually before connecting them later in development. This slapdash approach was typical for the company at the time. Their games often followed only a loose outline being formed in different groups and pieced together later on. It was this approach that some commentators believe was to the project's detriment and contributed to it never seeing the light of day. The reason why it fell apart, I mean, was because of the mismanagement. There was no clear plan, I'd say, from the start. I think in the old days of Ocean, they, they kind of had that winging it mentality where they chuck stuff together. They used to put games together in like two or three weeks sometimes if there was a Christmas deadline. But on the smaller platforms, you could get away with that. But I think as you got onto platforms, 16-bit uh, platforms, it was much harder to do. And Green Lantern didn't really have a clear de game design document. There wasn't a clear plan they were following. They were making it up. And I think that that caused problems because they were chucking stuff in which didn't really fit. For the time being, the game chugged along regardless into 1994, when, early into the year, it was disrupted by some big changes being made to the property at DC. The comic book giant had observed a slump in sales of Green Lantern and began plotting out a significant shakeup in order to renew interest in the series. These plans came into play when Hal Jordan's home co-city was eviscerated by the supervillain duo of Mongol and Cyborg Superman. Overcome by grief, Hal later attempts in vain to recreate his lost home by using his power ring, but surmises that a larger energy source will be required in order to accomplish his goal. His grief twists into madness, sending him on a rampage across the universe, slaughtering his fellow Green Lanterns along the way. 
He eventually arrives at the Green Lantern Corps HQ, where he wipes out all but one of the Guardians of the Universe and steals their main source of power. He emerges from the experience as the villain Parallax. Ganthet, the last surviving Guardian, travels to Earth and entrusts a ring of power to an unassuming freelance artist named Kyle Rayner. This controversial storyline named Emerald Twilight ran throughout the first months of 1994. It turned the star of Ocean's Game from hero to villain and was plotted out entirely without their knowledge. This meant that the team had to suddenly replace Hal Jordan with Kyle Rayner as the protagonist mid-development, a mandate handed down to them by DC with no prior warning. Parallax would later become reworked into a boss character that Kyle would have fought partway through the story. Following these changes, the title was reported to have had a small presence at the Winter Consumer Electronics Show of 1994. It also appeared in game magazines shortly thereafter. It was expected to be released in late 1994, according to the information supplied to these outlets. For this brief space of time, development was seemingly going smoothly, but as the year went on, the game's fate was cast into uncertainty. In mid-1994, Gary Bracey, Ocean's VP of Development, resigned from the company amid rumours of a possible takeover. Fearing a change in Ocean's workplace culture, he left before Green Lantern was completed. Over the years, many have given credit to Bracey's leadership as a key factor in Ocean's success. His departure set the stage for some of the difficulties that would follow. Green Lantern's SNES game was, according to former Ocean staff, finished on schedule by late 1994. A soundtrack had been recorded in full by Dean Evans, the studio's resident composer, and a bombastic conclusion to the story had been mapped out. Players would have infiltrated the outer rim of Zeos in an R-Type-esque horizontal shooting section before descending beneath the planet's surface to eventually confront the Queen in a final boss sequence. The game was awaiting testing when it was rocked once more by external forces. In September of that year, DC kicked off another world-altering event that was heavily based around the Green Lantern characters. Zero Hour Crisis in Time was a massive crossover storyline which had major implications for the entire DC universe. Hal Jordan, aka Parallax, used his newfound powers to reset the universe from scratch in the hopes of restoring Coast City and those who had perished. DC used this premise to wipe the slate clean, undoing certain past events and laying the groundwork for the future. This was another major development in the comic books that licensees Ocean Software had no prior knowledge of, but one which they would have to quickly adapt to in order for their game to see the light of day. DC instructed them that the game would need to be reworked to be set after the events of Zero Hour. This meant removing and or changing characters from the previous version of the DC Universe, such as Parallax. The changes needed to get it up to code were apparently significant, and Ocean Software's remaining management weren't keen to implement them. Despite it being very close to the finish line, a decent investment was still required to give it the refresh it needed. By late 1994, Ocean had concerns that the Super Nintendo's expiration date was drawing near. Weighing this up with the costs of revamping the game led them to shelving the project. Within a short space of time, the Green Lantern video game had gone from briefly being considered content complete to outright cancelled. 
The decision was made as part of a shift in priorities for Ocean Software, whose management was intending to phase out the development of 2D games and focus on 3D ones. This was met with some dissent from two key employees, programmer Andrew Deakin and artist Ivan Horn. As Frank Gasking explains, this creative disagreement quickly escalated with severe consequences. Ivan and Andrew weren't particularly happy about that, they kind of voiced their um, concerns about it, that it wasn't a great idea, and then the next thing they know, they're basically let go. They no longer have jobs, so they're, they're gone, essentially. And that, they were completely shocked by that, so um, by the sounds of it, they took their code with them. They didn't actually leave any remains of it at Ocean. For a few weeks, the fate of Ocean's Green Lantern appeared to be resolved, when, against the odds, the company chose to revive it. Bobby Earle, a programmer at the studio, had requested additional work hours in order to fund a mortgage deposit on a new house. After weighing up their options, Ocean went back on their previous call and placed him in charge of revamping their Green Lantern SNES game. Earl spent his usual hours at Ocean developing Silver, an RPG for PC. When the working day ended for most other employees, he switched over to Green Lantern. As the lone programmer on the project, and Andrew Deakin's code effectively gone, Earl had to rebuild much of the game himself. But there were still plenty of assets from the previous iteration he had access to. Large swaths of the art were reused, such as backgrounds, and the musical score from Dean Evans was brought back too. This new version of the project, seen here in motion for the first time, was built using the engine from Ocean's Jurassic Park 2 game. This side-scrolling shooter was a fresh take on the property that endeavoured to be more faithful to the comic books in the hopes of appeasing DC's higher-ups. The game's planned opening is particularly indicative of this approach. The team constructed a highly detailed cutscene which painstakingly recreated a sequence from the comics in which Kyle Rayner first gained possession of his ring. The dialogue is lifted off the page almost verbatim, a sign of their renewed commitment to the source material. Gone was the original story of Zeos and its power-hungry queen, replaced with an attempt to more directly adapt Rayner's origins into video game form. The first level would have seen him navigating a particularly dangerous Los Angeles street, blasting gun-toting thugs with his ring. As opposed to generating a series of different shapes with the ring, as you did in the previous version, the game simplified its functionality to a projectile weapon. It could be upgraded into a series of increasingly more devastating green firearms, such as a rocket launcher via power-ups. After making his way through the mean streets, the Green Lantern was intended to come up against a first boss. This was based around the first villain Kyle encounters in the comics, an unnamed man in a mech suit who is wreaking havoc and attempting to siphon off the city's power supply. The boss battle was seemingly never finished. This third iteration of the project dispensed with the shoot 'em up levels and mode 7 stages and chose to focus on making a side-scrolling shooter with elements of platforming. Some other variety sections were planned, but the specifics of them were yet to be determined. For a few months, a skeleton team tinkered away on the project in around late 1994 through into 95. This consisted primarily of Bobby Earle and a few artists including John Rietzer and Ray Coffey. 
This small group allowed Ocean to redo Green Lantern according to DC's specifications with less of a financial commitment, and having Bobby Earl develop it outside of work hours meant that resources were less impacted. These positives, however, couldn't ultimately offset the concerns that Ocean's higher-ups had held previously. The Super Nintendo was well into its twilight years by this point, and the company's trepidations about releasing new games on it were only growing. With the PlayStation set to arrive in the West later that year, and Nintendo's home console also looming, time was running out for Ocean's Green Lantern on the SNES. Realising the potential for diminished sales, Ocean finally pulled the plug on the project for good. John Lomax, an artist who briefly worked on Green Lantern, put it thusly, Ocean decided it wouldn't make enough additional revenue above their marketing and development costs to continue any further. The reboot of the project just compounded the problem. Former employees indicate that the game still had a decent amount of development time ahead of it. A few different levels were mapped out, but remained largely incomplete. The game would have eventually portrayed different worlds beyond Earth, including one crawling with alien mercenaries. Some of the music written for the game was re-implemented in another ocean game, Waterworld for the SNES. In 2011, Dean Evans posted his Green Lantern soundtrack on YouTube. The project's demise represented the beginning of the end for Ocean's relationship with DC Comics. A year after its cancellation, the company axed a fighting game based around Lobo, which was being made for the Mega Drive and Super Nintendo. Years later, the Green Lantern game slipped into relative obscurity, before Frank Gasking's research finally uncovered the truth about its development, which was first published in his book, The Games That Weren't. Frank's efforts also brought to light a prototype carriage from the end of development, recovered from former Ocean staffer Roy Fielding in 2019. You can learn more about the Green Lantern game in the Games That Weren't book and at gamesthatweren't.com. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich, but you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. It's been called one of the worst and most offensive games ever made. Originally released to little fanfare in 1995, Hong Kong 97 later found new life on the internet amid the rise of video game emulation software. Its cult status was elevated further as it received coverage from the games media and a certain popular internet video series. It was an unlicensed shoot-em-up game made for the Super Famicom by a writer going under the name Kowloon Kurosawa. It took aim at the Chinese government in a deliberately crude and provocative send-up of the game industry. Despite its online infamy, the circumstances surrounding its development have remained fairly obscure, save for people like Chris Shimon, aka the ultra-healthy video game nerd, who has developed a fascination with chronicling its history and has even gotten to know the game's reclusive creator. That's why he'll be lending his input throughout this video. 
Who were the people behind Hong Kong 97 and what of the culture that gave birth to it? This is just some of what we'll be exploring as we delve into the dark underground world of piracy in Japan and the creation of this twisted cult legend. Kowloon Kurosawa is the pseudonym adopted by a Japanese author, game developer and businessman. Kurosawa grew up as an eager gamer in the 1980s, avidly playing through anything he could get his hands on at the dawn of the home computing industry. Money was tight, leading him to seek alternative means to feed his hobby. He grew up as, as hardcore a gamer as you could be, you know, having limited amount of money and being in you know Japan in the late 70s early 80s a lot of the information and stuff was more in the West it was more outside of Japan so he was kind of like focused on looking for games outside of Japan from a young age where that led him to was because you know we're into Japan he could go to Southeast Asia and buy copied Amiga games and copied um, like DOS games and that was where he found this Magicom thing. The Super Magicom was a device produced by a small Taiwanese company named Front Far East. It was an unlicensed add-on for the Super Famicom that circumvented Nintendo's piracy protections, allowing users to copy their games to floppy disks and conversely enabling them to play games stored on floppies using their consoles. These gadgets helped to open the door for a whole market of pirated Super Nintendo games and unlicensed original titles. The Super Magicom became so ubiquitous in some parts of Asia that the name Magicom became an accepted blanket term for any game copying device, regardless of brand. For Kurosawa, this would be just the first of many forays into the illicit. In the mid-90s, he gained notoriety on the early internet when he founded his own bulletin board system, a server for exchanging files and messages. The BBS, known as Tokyo Isonet, was a virtual wild west brimming with illegal activity. Kurosawa would bolster his cred in this underground world of piracy fervor through his regular contributions to an infamous Japanese gaming magazine named Game Urara. This short-lived publication ran for just six issues and was a monument to all things taboo. Each issue was packed with tips and guides on pirating and hacking games, among other much seedier and less safer work topics. For one, the outlet maintained a fascination with the doomsday cult's Om Shinrikyo, which was responsible for the 1995 Tokyo subway sarin gas attack that claimed the lives of 13 people and injured thousands more. The magazine commonly wrote about the cult in a derisive manner, but undoubtedly served to bring more publicity to their operations regardless. One edition of the magazine featured electronic stores owned and operated by Arm in Japan, which sold pirated and hacked video games at low prices. It was able to do this because its staff were essentially slaves, devotees of the cult working without pay. Another issue of Game Urara contained an investigation of the cult's BBS server and the free software and games available on it. Furthermore, the magazine discussed a PC-98 video game based around Om named The Story of Kamakushiki Village. This highly controversial release was falsely rumoured for many years to have been made as propaganda by the cults, with some even believing it was developed as an attempt at mind control. 
In actuality, it was a satirical cult management simulator that was created by associates of Kowloon Kurosawa. Speaking to Vice News in 2019, Kurosawa claimed that the experience of seeing all members run for public office in Japan left him and his friends shocked. The experience inspired them to create their own video games in an act of defiance and mockery against the cult as their influence continued to spread. The story of Kamakushiki Village became the most well-known of these following its launch in summer 1995, just a few months after the cult's attacks in Tokyo. Its development was attributed to Happy Soft Limited, the company owned and operated by Kowloon Kurosawa that also created Hong Kong 97 that same year. And so we begin to understand the environment in which Hong Kong 97 was made. It came from the mind of someone who was deeply entrenched in a world of degeneracy and had no qualms with pushing the boundaries of taste. On an early unregulated Japanese internet, his BBS, made when he was still just a child in junior high school, facilitated untold levels of criminal activity. His writing explored Japan's darkest recesses and was remorseless in its promotion of piracy. On top of that, Kurosawa was coming of age in a climate of political hysteria as paranoia about arm and other threats loomed large in the media. But there was something more personal that played a role in motivating the creation of Hong Kong 97 too. As of early 1995, Kurosawa had begun to harbour resentment towards the video game industry. His ambitions of entering legitimate game development were failing to materialise, and worse yet, his business of selling Magicoms was effectively stamped out by Nintendo. The tech giant's lawyers tracked Kurosawa down in the mid-90s and put a stop to his activities with a cease and desist letter. In addition to this, any hope he had of independently developing for the Super Famicom through official channels was extinguished as he learned of Nintendo's rigorous content policies and licensing fees. Rejected by an industry that had once inspired him and swatted down by one of its biggest names, Kurosawa channeled his dissatisfaction into a new bootleg game project. He leveraged a recently acquired contact in the games industry to make it a reality. A programmer with an interest in the underground world of game piracy had taken notice of Kurosawa's work and wrote to him, offering his praise and services. The individual in question, who prefers to remain anonymous, was a developer who had worked with companies such as Square. So this person contacted Kurosawa and was like, let's make a game together. I want to make something with your, your uh, you know, mad genius. And that was the beginning of Hong Kong 97, basically. So Kurosawa just came up with just, you know, the most ravenous, you know, just offensive thing he could possibly think of. While Nintendo's licensing terms prohibited them from developing for the Super Famicom officially, the Magicom presented a path forward. Their game would be burned to floppy disks and sold to Magicom users, allowing it to ultimately be played on the Super Famicom. In early 1995, the project's very brief production was carried out. Even during this era, some games required months upon months of planning before any code could be written. For Hong Kong 97, on the other hand, it was drafted out and cobbled together within just a few hours. Kurosawa lifted stolen assets from almost anything he had to hand. A movie poster, second-hand laser discs, an old CD, anything even vaguely suitable found in his apartment would be combined in this cacophony of copyright infringement. While Kurosawa effectively directed the game, dictating its content, his new industry friend was responsible for programming it. 
As the game boots up, players are greeted with an appeal from the developers to join their business of illegally copying and reselling Super Nintendo games. Players are encouraged to submit their Magicom copy titles with the incentive that they will receive a third of the profits from any units sold. The game even presents HappySoft's business address for any interested parties to contact them. Immediately following this is the game's opening cinematic told by still digitized images and blocks of text. The story portrays a bleak near future in 1997, in which China assumes control of Hong Kong and crime rates subsequently skyrocket. The player controls Chin, a fictional relative of martial arts legend Bruce Lee, who is tasked by Hong Kong's government with wiping out the population of mainland China in retaliation. However, China is in the process of transforming its dead former leader, Tong Xiaoping, a parody of Deng Xiaoping, into the ultimate weapon, the title scene warns. That, in a nutshell, is the narrative of Hong Kong 97. It was a satirical forecast from 1995 of what would result from the transfer of sovereignty over Hong Kong from the British to the Chinese, which was set to occur in 1997. In some ways, it reflected widespread concerns that the anticipated handover would be to the detriment of Hong Kong, but a pointed political message this was not. According to those familiar with Kurosawa, this twisted vision of his, filled with overt racism against the Chinese, was never intended as propaganda. There, there is absolutely no manifesto to it at all. I think he is just looking at things and then just it becomes a mirror for them, you know, in his writing, in his videos, that you know, his documentaries. He just lets those things just be what they are. I don't think that he's thinking deeply about communism is the evil that we, the good people in the de democratic nations, need to fight against and take down to save humanity. I, I don't think that he's thinking anything on that level. You know, I, he, he loves Asia. He, he spends at least half his life there. His life is spent bouncing back and forth just between Japan and Southeast Asia. Hong Kong 97 took the form of a basic vertical shoot-'em-up. The player must guide Chin out of the way of oncoming enemies, of which there are many, and can destroy them by firing bullets. The game uses a one-hit kill system, and any time Chin dies, the player is booted back to the title screen and forced to sit through the entire opening sequence once again. Another wrinkle worthy of note is that every time the player dies, the game displays an uncensored, digitized photograph of a dead body used to represent Chin. A smaller version of the same picture also appears when any standard enemy is defeated after a brief graphic of a mushroom cloud. The origin of this image has long been the subject of debate online. One prominent theory alleged that the body belonged to a Polish boxer whose death matched the date stamp seen in the picture. However, evidence has since emerged to suggest otherwise. In truth, the image originates from Death File, an obscure series of snuff films that contained graphic images of dead bodies. The third edition of Death File shows the gruesome aftermath of a battle that took place within the first months of the Bosnian War. It was from this tape that Kowloon Kurosawa lifted the infamous dead body image. The corpse belonged to a Bosniak civilian who was killed in the conflict. It really was just something captured from a VHS he had. Like he had said, I mean, that's all it is. It's hard. It's sorry to, you know, break all, all of these fun theories that people have made. And kind of one ironic thing about it is that particular video is probably the rarest 
edition of the Death Files series. It's not been put on DVD. It only exists on VHS, uh, like some of the others. I've never seen one for sale anywhere. This was just one of many unauthorized digitized photos Hong Kong 97 made use of. Others included shots of the Chinese Communist Party leadership and an ad for Coca-Cola. The game uses these as backgrounds during gameplay and switches between them each time the player dies. Furthermore, images of the actor Jackie Chan from the 1984 movie Wheels on Meals were used to represent the main character Chin. Equally as infamous as these is the game's one and only piece of music, I Love Beijing Tiananmen, a communist anthem written by the Chinese government. Due to the Super Nintendo's storage restrictions, a mere six seconds of the song was sampled by Kurosawa for Hong Kong 97. With a healthy dose of irony, it is played on a constant, unceasing loop throughout the game from its title screen onwards. It is the only audio that can be heard during it. No other music or sound effects were used. The, the song is originally a sort of children's song uh, that the Chinese communist government wrote to get people to forget about the Tiananmen Square massacre. The lyrics just say, I love Tiananmen Square, the sun rises over Tiananmen. And that version of it, it's a pop song version of that song. And he had it on a laser disc for some reason. And he just sampled up to however much data he could squeeze into that game. The game lasts only several minutes for those who are able to make it through its bombardment of hazards and enemy fire. After a few minutes of regular shoot 'em up gameplay, its first and only boss appears, the aforementioned ultimate weapon, which is the disembodied head of deceased communist leader Deng Xiaoping. The head floats about the screen attempting to slam down on the player and after sustaining a certain level of damage it is defeated and standard gameplay resumes. The game runs on an infinite loop and lacks an ending of any kind. According to Kurosawa, he put together the materials for the game including graphics and music over the course of only a couple of hours. It was then sent off to his programmer who did their part separately. It is said that this individual used technology stolen from a major game publisher to bring it to life. That, that person, the mystery programmer, he, he used the base engine of another game that he had worked on at a major company. Uh, are you able to say which major company that was? Uh, almost certainly Enix. Okay. Uh, do you have any hunch like which game the engine might have been made for originally? Unfortunately, I, that's, I just I can't say that publicly. I'm sorry. Oh, no, that's okay. But you know. <laughs> I know. <laughs> okay, okay. That's not that. You will know because you'd, you'd be able to find out immediately who it is. Hong Kong 97 was unleashed upon the world in April 1995. Paid downloads of the game were available via Kurosawa's BBS server, and a very limited run of physical copies was sold in Game Urara. In the first edition of the magazine, the only known advertisement for the title can be found. Fewer than 100 copies were produced according to Kurosawa, but only around 30 or 40 were actually sold. The remainder were later destroyed. It was an unceremonious release that garnered little buzz outside of the director's immediate circles. Only a very small amount of money was made off the game, and for many years the project was largely forgotten about by those responsible for it. 
In the years that followed, Kurosawa continued to pursue his fascination with the depraved and explicit, travelling to Cambodia to document the illicit activities of his fellow tourists. Anything scandalous, sensationalist or illegal, he would write up in his various columns and books. His time working on video games was not over, however. In 2002, he privately developed another unlicensed title in a manner similar to how Hong Kong 97 was made, and much like that game, it was inspired by another sensitive political topic. The player controlled a boat manned by North Korean spies, tasked with approaching the shores of Japan and kidnapping civilians with the intention of ferrying them to North Korea for intelligence purposes. This was based upon the very real phenomenon of North Korean agents abducting Japanese citizens which occurred throughout the 1970s and 80s. In typical Kurosawa fashion, the subject was treated with little sensitivity, and the game was practically designed to offend, so much so that he shied away from releasing it, anticipating a backlash. I think after making it, he was just like, and this is going to get me so much flack. You know, so he just never showed anyone. <laughs> so he, that, that was more offensive, in his opinion, than Hong Kong 97. Yes, apparently. <laughs> In the mid-2000s, he returned to the field again, this time in a more official capacity than ever before. Kurosawa partnered with the very same programmer he had made Hong Kong 97 with to create a new game for the PlayStation 2. D3 was a Japanese game publisher responsible for the Simple series, a line of low-budget titles made in a matter of months. D3 had been searching for someone to helm an ongoing project in the Simple series and Kurosawa's name was put forward by his contact. The project was named Miniske Police, or The Miniskirt Police, a game about policewomen whose clothes gradually degrade and fall off as they take damage. While this sleazy premise was on brand for Kurosawa's work, he had since insisted that the core idea was already in place when he joined the project. His contributions to its creative direction included, in his own words, ripping off the gameplay from Rockstar's Manhunt, a popular title from that generation. It became a 3D beat-em-up where players assumed the role of a female special forces member fighting a criminal organisation about to flood the market with a potent new drug. A decade on from Hong Kong 97, he at last received some slither of recognition from the industry as he was able to release his first ever officially licensed video game. But it wouldn't be the last time his contributions to the medium would garner attention. Although Hong Kong 97 was far from a commercial success, the game began to be traded among enthusiasts at the dawn of emulation software. The ROM began circulating online throughout the 2000s, thanks in no small part to the way it was originally distributed, via internet downloads and floppy disks. Its notoriety would reach a crescendo, however, in 2015, as this obscure gaming legend was featured on the popular internet series The Angry Video Game Nerd. Worldwide interest in the game soared, as millions of people watched the nerd lampoon Kurosawa's magnum opus. There were more eyes on Hong Kong 97 than ever before, and this led to a new generation of people curiously digging into its history. This included Chris Shimon, who discovered the game via the AVGN, inspiring him to hunt down one of the only remaining physical copies in existence via Yahoo Auctions. This copy was later verified by Kurosawa himself, as Chris became familiar with the enigmatic creator and even met him in person. 
For years, people have wondered what drove him to make Hong Kong 97. Was it spite? A political agenda? Prejudices? The motivations behind its creation are something even Kurosawa himself struggles to express, according to Chris. I mean, isn't that, it's, it's very interesting. So I, you know, I've, I've met him a few times and we've developed, you know, almost you could say a friendship. And I really understand that after a while, it's like he's not so capable of verbalizing that. It's just, you know, he's fascinated by the macabre, you know, just, just anything that just seems out of the ordinary or daring or on the edge of legality. You know, he was just fascinated by anything shocking, basically. Just any, anything, you know, that was you know, illegal or, you know, just nasty or daring. You know, it's, it's what you would kind of call an edgelord. Yes, it's a shitpost, but its existence is a miracle. It's, it's a Super Famicom game. You know what I mean? It is. It's a Super Nintendo game. It, it, it didn't come on a cart, but it runs on Super Nintendo hardware. And in, in that context, the, I think just the most, what was the worst thing he could possibly do? Make a video game that has no respect whatsoever for any kind of copyright, any people's images, you know, any kind of political, political correctness. Uh, you know, use digitized images of dead bodies from the Holocaust, right? It's just, just everything he, anything he could possibly get away with within that, that small span. There are some motives that we can ascertain as to why this game was made, but its nature as an inexplicable odyssey is a big part of why people have curiously held onto it for so long and why it transcended its obscure roots in the Japanese bootleg market. On top of that, its implementation of an English language option, unusual for games of its ilk, allowed it to travel the world and find a second life in the West. Like so many of Kurosawa's works, it was made to do little other than provoke and grab the attention of audiences. And for better or worse, that is undoubtedly something it succeeded in doing decades on from release. Did you also know that Nintendo have made several prototype pieces of hardware that never found their way to market? For a whole bunch of facts about lost Nintendo hardware, check out the video on screen. Who's that peeking in my window? Ah, uh, you should let some more skin show. And if one of these websites get the info, we can work it out. No Nintendo. At Parker, our purpose is simple. We want to make the world a better place. By working more efficiently. By using more sustainable practices. By developing better technologies. We keep moving forward. With each new idea, innovation, and partnership. We're one step closer to fulfilling our purpose every single day. To find out more, visit parker.com slash purpose. Parker, engineering your success. Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate megastores led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill.